fire and the courage that it takes to put your life at risk. Within the United States, as a nation as a whole, we have had 41 million veterans, men and women, that have signed up to serve, whether that was in the draft or whether it was of their own free will. But there has been 41 million individuals that have served our nation to found it, to keep it going, and to protect the rights that we all have. If you think about that, that number seems so, so high. But in our nation, we have only had 320 million Americans on this soil. From the time of our founding in 1776, as we declared our independence from Great Britain, to today. So 41 million people, which is about 8% of the entire population of the United States as it is, have went to the battlegrounds. They have went to the front lines. They have went to places they never imagined and seen horrendous atrocities like none other. But they did it. Because they knew that there was a greater calling on their life. It's not one that will ever grow less. In fact, as the world seems like it's getting more chaotic, it seems like it's getting more fearful in the ability to even want to get on the, on the front lines and to be able to say, I will go and do what I can to do it. So for that being said, I thank each and every one of my fellow servicemen and women who have stood in the gap and said, I will do whatever it takes to serve, to protect, and to keep hold the treasures that we have in our nation. The foundational elements that we are free people, endowed by our creator, that we have the ability to have life and life more abundantly. So thank you, Brother Chip, Brother Kenny, Brother Marcus, Brother Steve, who I'm sure is at home, not feeling well, but still watching the service. Thank you for willing your willingness to go where others would not. Can we give them one more round of applause this morning? But if you think about it, this morning being Veterans Day and knowing all that I had to look at yesterday, I looked at my wife and I said, honey, they have all this stuff that's free that I could go have, but I just want to spend it home with you. And it's a scary thing. It's a scary thing because I don't want to go outside anymore half the time because I walk out and I see craziness and chaoticness. You turn on the news nowadays and you're inundated with pro-Palestinian marches across New York and, and, and all across London and everything like, you're just like, I don't understand it. Or you, you've seen the grave images and heard of the horrendous atrocities that have happened in Israel. Or better yet, you've seen the images of the battlefield of Ukraine. Can I just be honest? I have talked to men who have went to wars that I never even knew about because I wasn't around, but they lived through it, such craziness. And they're so apprehensive to talk about what they've witnessed. In college, I, I took a course on the Vietnam and Korean War. And in it, I had to do an assignment, which was to find a, 
veteran of the Korean War that would be willing to talk about what they had encountered and that have fought the, fought the front line. And I, I knew of a gentleman that I knew had served in the army at some point in time, but I didn't know which war he served at. So I said, hey, can I just ask you a question? What war did you serve? And he said, I went to, to Korea. And I said, okay, can I talk to you about it? And he says, I don't know if I'm up to it, but let me pray about it and let me think about what I want to talk about. And I said, okay. I said, I'm not trying to, to push you in any way, shape, or form. I could go to other sources, but I have learned in my life, sometimes the best accounts are the ones that have been lived instead of read through the, the filtered version of our history books. And he, he, he apprehensively said, I'll talk about it. <clears throat> and he sat down and he told me about how he was in the middle of these woods. And he said, I never knew if, if a Korean soldier was going to pop up and shoot us or whatever was going to happen. He, he went out every single day with the unknown. And better yet, the fear of the unknown. But he says, there was something in my life that gave me courage that I didn't understand. And he says, I witnessed friends of mine get murdered in the combat that they were in. I've witnessed such heinous actions because people were so desiring for their own intentionality that somehow they talked others to do it for them and wars and wars and wars would keep popping up. And he says, I didn't understand it. I still don't understand it. And I could just look at him and I could see his face melt as he talked about his accounts. And it's one of those ones that I, I, I don't understand. Like I said, I served in the army. I signed the dotted line after 9-11. I never saw conflict or combat. Because while I was in the middle of a lot of my training sessions, I was medically injured and, and medically discharged for a back injury that I've lived through for the longest time. But I've talked to my battle buddies, the men and women that I would have served alongside of, doing everything that I could to protect this nation. But can I tell you, I'm thankful that it wasn't my author and my, my finishing of my life that had set apart my life. It was God's. And I truly believe that we are all here, whether we've served in this army, whether we've served in the Marines, whether we've served in the Navy, whether we've served in the Coast Guard. We all are here, whether or not that we've even served in those for a purpose such as now. To get through this life and to figure out what we are called for all while seeking something that's greater than ourselves that we can't always grasp at. And this week, can I just be real with you? I question why I even served the dotted, or signed the dotted line to serve this nation. I'm not one that likes to get into little political things in the pulpit. 
And I'm not going to get into the political things in the pulpit outside of I am completely in awe and in wonder of, of how our nation has fallen asleep so much. You see, I was one that was under the impression that I thought Ohioans were not going to ever vote for a law that would amend the Constitution to allow murder. I never thought I'd see the day where I would see our nation, a state like we are, a battleground state that would say, we can let you have whatever you want. And this week, all I could do was weep. God, why are you allowing this to happen? God, I was willing to die for this nation, but I don't want to do that anymore because I can't sign the dotted line that agrees with this type of laws in this nation. And as I was weeping, God kept saying, you've got to read and understand there's more to this life than what you're seeing. And then I opened up this, the, the, the scriptures for this week, and God just was like, you better hold on, because there's a lesson in here for you. And I was like, God, I don't know if I want to even get in the pulpit this week. Let me tell you, I'm, I, I'm, I'm 57% Scottish. And if you know anything about Scottish people, you know that we can get a temper on us. And sometimes we don't get to control that temper. And so as I was processing this week, and I was like, God, I don't want to preach. God, I don't want to do this. God, why? Why? What is it? And he kept saying, just trust me. And I said, God, I want to be a good Christian. I want to be a good leader of my church. I want to empower people to pursue after you and all they do. But the questions that keep hitting my door, keep hitting my text messages, keep hitting my, my voicemails are why? Why is there wars? Why is there conflicts? Why is there such depravity in a nation and a people that think that they are the author and finisher of their own lives? Why are you allowing that to happen, God? And most of the time, I always say, you know what? When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask that question to St. Pete. Pete, why'd you go and have to follow Jesus? And why'd you have to go and get hung on a cross upside down? You were just doing what Jesus said you were called to do. Better yet, ask the Apostle John. John, why did you let them poison you? John, why did you let them boil you in a pot as they were trying to kill you? Why did you keep going in your life in such isolation on Patmos? Better yet, John, even after all of that, why were you still writing the book of Revelation? Why were you still serving God? And the other one I want to ask is, Paul, Paul, you are a murderer. But why? Even in the face of beheading, you would not shut up. You would not stop talking about Jesus because what he did on the Damascus Road encounter that you had with him. John, or Paul, why are you doing what you're doing? And all I keep thinking about is, God, we live in a wicked, 
cruel, lost, and dying world. How can I minister to my flock, to each and every one of you that hears the sound of this message and these words that are going to come through? How can we keep going? And the thing I, I have to say is, I don't know how you are going to keep going outside of his good and mighty hand leading you along life's journey. Today is our 11th week as we look at the book of James. A book that's five chapters that seems like it's so little, but there's so much power into it and so much ramifications of our lives that need to be unfolded and unpacked in each and every one of us. Because what James is bringing to the table that we have to look at this week as we try to answer that question is knowledge and relationship with Jesus. You see, James, if you don't know it, if you're newer to the church, the guy that wrote the book of James is Jesus' half-brother. The brother who came from his dad, not his mama. He spent time with Jesus growing up. He spent time with Jesus on his earthly ministry. He spent time with Jesus after he ascended and after he got the Holy Spirit in him. And it's this wisdom that he brought to the table to a church that was scattered and the first century church that we are, are, are kind of looking at these letters from and how they apply to our lives today shows its importance and its wisdom behind it. You see, James knew that the church in order for it to prosper, to grow, and to, to become more Christ-like, they needed to have truths that would get applied to their life on questions that are hard. He talked about how you're, you're not supposed to always speak what you want to say. Let me tell you, Scottish, that's not always the easiest thing to do. Better yet, how to learn to listen more intently with what other people's issues and struggles are so that way you can show the compassion and kindness that Jesus did. Or the fact that faith without works is dead because faith apart from works will get you saved, but without the works you're not actually showing the, 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 the inward change within your life. You see, what I'm trying to get at is, is James was writing in the first, search, uh, first century church to a bunch of people that didn't have a Bible. They had this thing called the Torah, which was locked away in the temples that they would go to on the Sabbath, and they would read a section and understand it, but they didn't have Jesus' writings like we do. Instead... They had to go with the wisdom of the founding fathers of the faith, the, the apostles, and the t those that they taught, and those that were discipled and were trying to become disciple makers. And today we have it so good. Because in my house we have 50 Bibles. Just because I'm a pastor and I collect Bibles. But in most houses we have one Bible. In all houses we have the capacity to download a Bible on our phones and have with us on these little pocket screens at all times. But can I ask the quick question? Who reads it? You don't have to raise your hand. I'm not trying to shame somebody this morning. 
I'm thankful that you're willing to say, you know what, I'll admit it, I'm the, I'm the one that reads it every single day. I'm the one that allows it to get into my life and become a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path as I go through this journey. But the sad statistic that shows where our church is at right now is that you have 100% of the church attendances, which is like a fraction of what it was 10 years ago. But out of that 100% attendance, only a quarter of those Christians actually walk in a Christ-like manner. I mean, 75% of people just show up, sit in the pews and go, yep, just give me what I want. I'm just checking my box. I I'm, I'm just want to get out of here. I want to go to Bob Evans. I want to go to Charlie's. Come on, can he just be done preaching already? Or better yet, they get out there and you don't see the change in what Jesus can do in their lives as the Holy Spirit empowers and equips us when their tongues are spewing such hatred into this world. And you wonder why we get so discouraged so much. Why the world looks to the church and doesn't see the hope that we have. Why, like the United States, they look at the military as something that's no longer needed. Or better yet, why they don't look at the atrocities of Hamas but they look at the, the battle of the war that had started some 60 years ago when Hamas was formed to go up against Israel and was willing to do whatever it took to smash and to destroy Israel. They don't want to look at that. They just want to look at, oh, look at the heinous acts because Hamas is telling us it's bad. Can I just tell you one true fact? Don't believe everything you see. Don't believe everything you hear. Question it all. Look for the answers that will help you derive the truth in each and every single day that you have. My kids, that's what I'm teaching them. It's like Julia. Julia looks at me and goes, Dad, why are they marching for the Palestinians? I said, because they believe that this one atrocity is bad, but they don't want to believe that the other one was real. And she says, but Dad, that just doesn't make sense. And I said, I know, sweetheart. But as I get older... And as I get a little bit more wiser, I guess, I just keep seeing it go into the same patterns where people do not seek truth. And that is why a lot of people have left the church. Because the church doesn't answer the truth that they want. Like the question, if God is real, why do bad things happen to good people? I don't have your answer outside of this. Jesus says, in my life, there will be many things. And in your life, as you follow me, persecution will follow with it. And that doesn't make us any more easily understanding. And that's why I love how James kind of puts it this way. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to James chapter 5 and verse 1. And in it, it starts and says, come now, you rich Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, 
the wages of your labors, who uh, mowed uh, your fields, which have kept back your, uh, by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgences. You have fattened your hearts in the days of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous people. He does not resist you. Father, Lord, I thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for the word that you've given us, Lord, and the hearts and the minds that are open and ready to hear what your word says and how it applies to each and every one of us. But God, give me the words to say. Holy Spirit, use me like accordingly how you want to, Lord, so that I can be the vessel that pours out a little bit of nourishment to a people that are asking the tough questions. Be with us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, Why? Why does this text correlate with the question? How does it apply? Because it's a warning. It's a warning to those in the world that would think that they are rich and don't realize that judgment is soon coming. You see, we live at a time and an era in the United States where everybody knows everybody because they're connected through Facebook. Where they want to put on their best foot forward and put out the best presentation. Like, they go and, and they get their morning coffee and they get their Bible and they, they're like, hashtag morning blessed. But in all reality, they didn't even read the word. They're just sitting there uh, drinking coffee, flipping on Instagram reels and watching videos or scrolling on, on just the photos trying to figure out how to make their life look so picture perfect. You see, my household, you come to my household, I warn you, we lived there. I have five daughters. We lived there. You can imagine what it's going to look like. I want it to look good all the time, but it doesn't look good all the time. Better yet, in my household, I have five daughters who want things. And in those wants, I've tried to teach them lessons, but you see, I kind of got reminded about how our society operates and functions because of what came in the mail the other day from Amazon. You see, Amazon brought back something that I grew up with on how I derived the ideas of Christmas presents I wanted. Can I, can I just say I'm old? I'm not that old, but I'm old. And then when I was growing up, we got catalogs from like Walmart, Tar, um, Kmart, uh, Sears, all the different stores around there, and they had the Christmas idea guide. You know what I'm talking about, right? Come on, talk back a little bit. And I would go, okay, I want the Legos. Oh, I want that RC car. Oh, yeah. And I'd be like, okay, I want this board game. I want this CD. I want this CD Walkman. I want this boom box. Because, you know, I had to be the cool kid that had the, the, the one boom box that took 10 uh, size D batteries as you're walking around going, do 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 And everybody heard what you were listening to. And, oh, Lord, if I could go back now and what I would tell myself now then, whew. But what I'm saying is, my kids have found the Amazon catalog, which is similar to that. 
And I've watched them go and find the marker and they're highlighting this Barbie doll over here or this dream house over here or the Barbie car here or American doll here. Whereas my other kids are getting older. I want this iPad. I want this, this, this new gadget over here. And I'm like, okay, I see where you're coming from. But I also see society as we've gone through a, a, a metamorphosis since 1940 when we were at the last great world war to today. Back then, we had people scrounging to just find a little bit of bread to eat. And today, we go to Panera Bread and we throw away half our sandwich. Back then, people were trying to figure out what to eat. If they had to go kill Bessie over there because that was their best friend, but they didn't have meat, so they had to go and butcher Bessie to get some food. And today, we're over here going, oh, I got to have the vegan caramel macchiato from Starbucks that cost me $15. What I'm trying to get at is, is we live in a society which is very much geared to self-indulgences. We live in a society that if it's not what we want, we want to cancel it. We live in a society where if we don't agree with it, eh, you're just marked off. I won't visit you anymore. Better yet, you've got to love the political side of things. You have houses divided that won't even meet together anymore because they're divided between the red and the blue party. And we wonder why we're having such depravity in our nation and in our families and in our lives and all that we do. But what I've learned and I've seen and I've witnessed is that we have this whole thing in this life where we're only worried about the self-gratification of things like what we can eat, who we can have sex with, and better yet, what entertains us the most. And all that is feeding is this idea that this flesh is more valuable than the thing that's inside of it that's supposed to lead you. And that's why when I looked at issue one and I saw how it passed and I was in complete, utter disbelief, I looked at the society and I said, they've lost a lot of cornflakes in their brains. Because they're only looking to their own wants and their own desires. Oh, I don't want to have a kid today, so this little precious gift that God formed in my womb, I don't want anymore. Oh, I want to go out and just smoke all the marijuana so I can drive 15 miles an hour in a 35 because I don't have the mental capacity to know that I'm driving away under the speed limit. Don't ask me how I know. But what I'm trying to get at is, is that we live in a place and a time that no other, that seems like we're all lost and we cannot find our ways any longer. But because we are holding back and we're wondering and asking God, God, what is going on in this world? And we're waiting for the answers and we're not seeing it and we can't fathom the ideas of what are going to happen. We lose track. We lose track of it all because we're not putting our focus on God and everything that we have. You see, James is saying to the the people and to the world that would hear him, he says, if your basket is in what you can achieve and earn and hold your stock in this world, you've lost your ever-living mind. 
I'm not saying you shouldn't go out and work. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to make the best of this life. I'm saying if that's your primary goal is to satisfy just the flesh in your life, you're getting a warning red flag right here, right now. Stop. Because James said it so clearly when he says, you don't realize it. What you're doing is going to be the evidence against you in the day of judgment. Oh, but we don't believe in judgment because God is love and love is God and it all just works together. Can I just tell you, the God we serve is a holy and just God. And if he's those two words, if he's holy, that means nothing that has any blemish or anything wrong or corrupted in it can come near him. And if it does, there's something going to rock and change because God cannot be around that negative corruption. That's why when Lucifer tried to come up and say, I want to be like God and let my corruption of my ideas come through, he says, get away. You're out of here. Better yet, if he's a righteous God, full of righteous judgment and indignation, whatever he says goes. You see, the world doesn't like those words. A lot of people in the churches get uncomfortable when you bring up those key facts. Like, God shouldn't judge me because I'm just doing my best and that's all I can do and, and everything like that. Can I just say it again? You can do your best, but it's never going to be a good enough. Let that simmer down for you a second. You can do all you can do, and it's never enough. You can go and, and try to be a good person like, like most of the Hindus do and say, my karma's got to get outweighed over here, and this is going to be what it is, because this is the riches that I'm holding on to, and it's going to be my, my silver and gold that gets me into the new life, and I'll be peachy king. And the word says it's not enough. You could be over here serving Allah and doing everything that you can do to try to honor Allah and, and do the religious motions and everything. But if you don't weigh out your scale just right and you don't do your worship just right, it's not enough. You see, James is writing to a church that has a lot of confusion and a lot of misguidedness because the churches he's writing to and the time that he's in is a scattered church throughout Israel, throughout the Roman Empire, throughout Asia Minor, all these different beliefs that are all combined together because if you study the Roman Empire, they would conquer one and then pull in their gods and stuff like that and add that to their real. So when, Paul, or when James is writing these letters and he's telling these people, you don't realize you're trying to save up money to go worship the wrong God. You're trying to worship your own God. You're trying to worship yourself. But there's something you have to be warned about. It's not enough. It's going up against you in the end times when you got to go meet your maker and you got to go and take an account for everything you've said. Everything you've done, everything you've thought was good. And get ready. Because it doesn't look good for you, boo. If you're old enough to know what boo is, you're good. If you're older than that, boo means you. 
I'm a little younger. I use a little bit of more slang terms a little bit. I'm not as young as some of the kids that go and tell me weird words like my kids. And I'm like, what are you saying? But what I'm trying to get at is James is trying to put a red flag warning on the world and say, if you hear these words, you have no hope if that's how you're living your life. Because if your idea is to step over everybody else to get your, your, your win of the prize, you've missed the mark. You've missed the purpose. You've missed the calling of what the Great Commission was. Because what we have to understand is you're not enough. But Jesus is. You're never been enough for anything to honor God unless you have Jesus that's redeemed you and washed you by his blood uh, as he went to the cross to, to, to pay all of your, your, your punishment price as he died on the cross and, and bore your iniquities. You were not enough until that moment, until you accepted that into your life. And you're not enough if you don't walk with that truth and that knowledge every single day of your life with everything you have. You're not enough until you allow him to make you worthy. See, that's the transformation hope of what Jesus did. That's why Jesus is the true Messiah, the one that was willing to achieve all of the prophetic writings about himself and to, to show us that the Messiah was not coming just to overthrow Rome, but to overthrow the selfish indignation that we all bear because this flesh is contrary to the spirit within each and every one of us. It wants more of the world. It wants more of everything that it can have, but it's going to always cause you to go towards damnation. And what Jesus is trying to say is, I don't want you to go that path. I want you to find me, and I want you to walk out the Great Commission. See, the church as an early body struggled with the same thing we're still doing today, trying to figure out who's the best. Who's worthy of it all? And in the car this morning, I'm sitting there paying for my breakfast. And, I, and one thing that I, I kind of laughed about it is because I'm weird. OCD tendencies. I had some ones to pay for my breakfast. And I was like, okay, I'm going to give them the nasty, good ridden, nothing wanted, dirty $1 bill. I want the clean dollar bills in my wallet, right? And I started thinking about it. The nasty, no good $1 bill paid for my breakfast the same as the clean $1 bill would do. You see, we don't know we're a mess until somebody calls us out. We don't know how much we are in the stinky poo-poo until somebody says, oh man, what is that smell? We don't realize the disconnection until somebody calls us out or until a sense of wisdom hits us. And when James is writing to the church, he's saying, if that's your goal is to achieve what you can on this earth, you've missed the mark. Because this life was never meant for this world. It's meant for eternity after. I know one thing's for certain. One thing's completely for certain. We all have an expiration mark. Brother Methuselah here is going to be around here for another thousand years. 
Brother Jack, I love you, buddy. 93 years strong. <laughs> but here's the point. If we've been living our life in the pursuit of our selfish wants, you're not guaranteed it. You see, the early church, they had struggles like we do. They lose sight of the mark all the time. And James is writing and saying, hey, it's time to get back to the simple Great Commission. Go into all the worlds, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Holy Spirit, and letting them know the truth and letting them become disciple makers and keep replicating on and on the faith that you have that's transformed your life. Only then can you have hope. Only then can you see what God's trying to do. Only then can the true treasures that you're supposed to earn can be with you in heaven. There's a reason in my household we will serve the Lord. It's because I don't want to go a day knowing my kids are in hell while I'm dancing on streets of gold. There's a reason in my household I teach my kids not to be religious. Oh, can I say that again? I don't teach my kids to go through the religious motions. But I teach them to learn the relationship with Jesus. Because only then can they understand when they get into the dark, scary places who they can call out to. And it's not always going to be dad. You see, we have to get back to the point that we don't have the answers. I know how long I have left and I have way too much to say. But I'm going to have to pull back a little bit. Because what I need you to understand is the questions that we're going to keep encountering and asking of why God is such a wicked world still ruling so much. And it's because... The day of judgment is not yet here. Somebody needs to hear that. It seems like every time something goes wrong, we want somebody to fix it right then and there. Lord knows, in my household, I have Nora. If you've not met Nora, Nora's four. Anything that you do to Nora, Nora comes and goes, Daddy! So and so hit me. Daddy, fix them. And I'm like, Nora, I love you, sweetheart. But I'm not going to fix them right here. Let me work through the situation and help you grow to understand that bad things are going to happen to you because stupid people are always around. Becca, I didn't call you stupid. <laughs> These are my conversations in my household. But it shows how we are in our childlike mannerisms that we don't always get rid of is when bad things happen, we want to judge right then and there. And then when the world comes in and goes, if, the, if God is so real, then why does wars happen? Why do bad people do bad things? It's because our hearts are always ours to give to, his, to him. Our hearts are our responsibility to give to God. But a lot of the times in our world today, our hearts are given to self. Can I say that again? We have people in the pews, people in the world, people all over this world that would rather keep feeding their heart back to themselves instead of giving it to God. That's why people don't understand what love is. They think love is, oh, I just love this person. They're so beautiful. I just want to be married to them. No, sweetheart. Love is not just an emotion. It's actually a, 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 an objective of what you're willing to do because love has to be patient. Love has to be kind. Love has to be no bearers of wrongs. Love has to go on and on because true love is one that gets rid of self and starts putting it back to somebody else. 
I'm sorry. I think the church needs to realize that what James is trying to say to us today is that we need to give our love always and forever back to God. We need to get to the point where we're not willing to have the condemnation of what James is saying, of our, our selfish ambitions and desires to be the thing that rules our roost. Instead, it should be him. Because only then do we have the eternal promise of peace. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 16 starts it off like this. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and the righteousness remain in the fruitful fields. The work of the righteousness will be in peace, and the effect of the righteousness will be in quietness and assurance forever. My people will dwell in peaceful inhabitants, in secure dwellings, and in the quiet resting places. Though halls come down on the forest, or hell comes down on the forest, and the cities is brought low in humiliation. Blessed are those who sow beside all waters, who send out freely the feet of the oxen and the, the donkey. Those that are willing to say, I will stand in the gap. If you're willing to say, I want God and everything I have, he's saying, you're going to go through hard times. And though storms might hit, you can't quit. If you'll stand with me this morning. Though the storms may come, though the wars may come, though the struggles may come, we have to realize that the heart of a Christian should be like that of somebody that signed up for the service. Willing to go in all the world Willing to fight the battles nobody wants to fight. Willing to stand in the gap when nobody else wants to. Willing to do whatever it takes with the full knowledge that you might have to give your life for someone else. You see, that's what we're called to be as Christians. That's what the church is called to be. There's a reason we give to missions. There's a reason why we open the doors. There's a reason we ask you to serve. There's a reason why we encourage you to give God whatever you can, to do whatever he's called you to do, and to be obedient. It's because if you have the servant's heart, you'll be willing to do whatever it takes. You see, I remember a time where I was discouraged. I remember the struggling times where I said, God, I can't do that. God, I'm not good enough for that. God, I'm not worthy enough for that. And you might be going through the same thing. You might be going through the same ratchet of questions saying rapid fire, God, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I won't, I won't, I won't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. And all he's saying is, if you'll just stop talking, put your trust into my hand. And let me lead you along life's journey. And let me show you that however you might think you're going to fall, you're going to show what love is. You see, here's the question I want to ask each and every one of you. Are you willing to lay your life down for someone else? Are you willing? 
Because what James, or 1 John 3, uh, 3.16, it says it like this. There is no greater example of love than this, that one would give his life for his brother. See, Jesus showed us that greatest example. When he came on the earth, and he, he, he went through all that he went through, and he went and got beaten, and he got mocked, and he got the crown of thorns shoved on his head, and he went to the cross. And they nailed him there, and he suffocated a horrific death for you. You see, Jesus was saying, I'm willing to do whatever it takes for you. But more importantly, I'm going to go the extra mile. And I'm going to show you that what I do for you is one to give you the hope that you need. To give the hope of those around you that they need. To give you the ability to walk in the fulfillment of why you were put here on this earth. And he rose from the dead. To show you that whatever you're going to go through, the questions you might have, it's all worth it in the end. So I want to ask this morning, are you willing to stand in the gap knowing it might cost you everything? If that's you this morning, come forward. Come to the altar. If you're willing to say, I don't care what it costs, I want to follow Jesus, come forward.